All righty. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to, as we like to say around here, advance the ball a little bit this morning. And last week, last week we began kind of looking at, looking at this question of what it means to follow Jesus in, in real life terms. What it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, more than just what we say. More than just even what we sing. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when we leave here? Right? This is, this is a, an important part of our, of our walk with Jesus. We're, we're called to, to not forsake the gathering. Right? Um, this is a wonderful time of fellowship. So this is gathering on Sundays is, is very important. And yet, we'll see that, that to be a disciple, if we're not careful, we may, have, we may have come up with some misperceptions and some inaccurate definitions of that, which has really impacted us, whether you've been in church for one day, one year, 20 years, right? Um, and, and we're working through this, and we're not going to be in a rush because really, uh, this is really the core of, of, for you and me as followers of Jesus, what does it really mean? And, and we have to be real clear on this because, I've got to tell you, if you're going to follow Jesus, especially today, it's not going to be popular necessarily. And, and here's the thing, the world's not going to get it. They just won't. They're not really going to understand they may even label you and, and call you some unflattering names when all you want to do is follow Jesus, right? All you're trying to do is follow Jesus. All you're trying to do, do is be a faithful disciple and the world isn't even going to understand that. And, and here's a challenging thing. People in the church may not even understand it. And, and you'll be confronted with choices every day. Numerous times throughout the day. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Knowing, knowing what you know. What does Jesus say? Hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Woohoo! Anyone? Right? And, and, and we're going to read Scripture and we're going to look through Scripture. And I, and I believe through Scripture we're going to understand what, what Jesus meant when he said, come follow me um, culturally and in that context. And I believe for many of us, you're going to go, oh, really? Wow. And you're going to need that, that biblical understanding and the biblical basis because when you leave here and you make choices to be a follower of Jesus, yeah, there's going to be consequences. There may be consequences to that. You know, uh, i got to share with you the, 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 something that was brought to my attention last Sunday, right? Uh, someone in the fellowship hall is winding down and says, hey, can I talk with you for a minute? I'm like, Sure. Right? And, and, and we chat. And this person relays to me that someone had come to them to share, share something. Don't you like that? Right? Code for gossip, rumor. Right? Especially in small town. Right? So, so I was informed uh, that it had to do with, with my daughter's upcoming uh, wedding. In May, right? And if you don't know, 
And just to update you, I have an oldest daughter. She's 24, just got engaged a few weeks ago. She's a nurse in Little Rock. Her fiancé is finishing up med school in Little Rock, and they are seeking the Lord for residency, which means he's, for five years he's going to get stationed somewhere uh, in, in his final preparation. So that's where they are, and that's going to happen uh, May, June or July, right? So she's finished last year. She's in first year of adult, adulting, as she calls it. She's adulting, and he's finishing up med school. So last Sunday, I was informed that there is a rumor, you know, there's a phrase if you're in the military scuttlebutt, right, in the valley that, well, you know, I heard, the classic I heard, you know, Pastor Richie's daughter and, and, and her fiancé, you know, you know, they're getting married in May because she's pregnant. <laughs> I mean, I just like, I just laughed. I was like, really? I wasn't even mad. It's so comical if you know them. Because I know them. And it's comical. And I shared this rumor with, with Layla, my daughter. And she laughed, too. Wasn't even upset. <laughs> Are you kidding me, Dad? Really? The world doesn't understand that they're just doing it right in a God-honoring way. That they're getting married in May so that wherever he gets stationed for residency, they go as a married couple. Right? And, and I know, in appropriate ways, just so you know, I know, barring an immaculate conception... Things are fine in that area. <laughs> if that was the case, we'd have 10,000 people coming to this thing. Oh, really? It's a miracle! But what are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? They're just following Jesus. They want to do it in a God-honoring way. Well, there's got to be there's got to be something, right? It kind of says more about the people's mindset, right? But the world doesn't get it. There has to be a reason that it's this soon. Well, who said you have to be engaged for, what? what's the norm? A year, year now? Who said? It's God's timeline. It's God's timeline, right? And, and then she shares with me this, this running joke, kind of. Um, and, and she's in the South, and so you know, she has good relationships. People are very friendly, and so there's two older women who work on her floor. And somehow or another, it comes up, the wedding and everything. And these two older women could not believe, could not believe, like, and this is even in the South, could not believe that Layla and Zeke as a fiancé don't live together. Could not believe. 24-year-old and a 32-year-old med student, they could not believe, could not believe that they don't live. And she said, we're doing it right. I mean, you know, and, and, and they had this, this, this bantering back and forth. And now there's, you know, she, she's kind of there's this loving joke on her floor, you know, about purity and all this kind of stuff. The world doesn't get it. They don't understand. And so, so on her floor, they're lovingly kidding her because they don't get it. Really? Oh, come on, you must be living to... No! And, and, and I share this story with you. A, so if you hear the rumor in town, you can squash it. But B, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus... 
they're not going to get it. They're going to try to concoct some explanation that fits their worldview. When the basis for being the follower of Jesus is this. This is our worldview. So I give you that, uh, just, just some context of, you know, and, and, and I, it, I was reminded of this story I read in, in, in a book where a pastor had gotten an email to his church and this, the email stated that, that someone was asking at their church to be removed from church membership. They were asking, please remove me from, from church membership. And the reason that, he, that this person gave in, in the email was, and the pastor's name is Kyle, so this is, please remove me from church membership. I'm leaving your church. Reason, I don't like Kyle's sermons. Okay, so Pastor Kyle looks him up, gets his phone number, and decides to call him. So he's calling him. He turns off. He says he turns off caller ID, so he doesn't know who's, who's calling. So he calls him, and he says, hey, I hear you're leaving the church because you don't like my sermons. <laughs> right? Catches him off guard. And, then, and this is what he does. He, 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 he had initiated the call driving so the pastor pulls over because he had to write down what what the guy said so this is he says i pulled over to the side of the road grabbed a pen and wrote down what he said this is this is his response quote well whenever i listen to one of the messages i feel like you are trying to interfere with my life (laughs) careful don't laugh too loud Nudge, nudge. <laughs> and, then, and then this is, this is what the pastor writes in continuing. Is, uh, yeah, um, that's kind of like my job description. But do you hear what he was saying? This is the pastor writes in his book. He's saying, quote, I believe in Jesus. I'm a big fan, but don't ask me to follow. I don't mind coming to church on the weekends. I'll pray before meals. I'll even slap a Jesus fish on my bumper. But I don't want Jesus to interfere with my life. When Jesus defines the relationship he wants with us, he makes it clear that being a fan who believes without making any real commitment to follow isn't an option. Whew. And, and the thesis of his book, and the question of the book is, are you a fan or a follower? Are you a fan or a follower? And if you say, I'm a follower, do you really know what that means? Do you really know what that means, right? In Mark 8, in Mark 8, we saw last week, Jesus, verse 27, he has this conversation with his disciples, right? And it says this, Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Right? So we saw last week, fundamental question, most important question any human being on this planet can, ask, can answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? And do you really know what you mean 
when you say that, right? Because look at what Peter says. You are the Christ. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter gives the right answer, but we discovered last week he didn't really know what he meant by that. Right? Christ, we quick review, right? What does Jesus mean? The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua means the Lord saves, right? Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is a title. Good, good. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. So if you're going to actually say Jesus, you would say Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Okay, that's, that's actually more biblically accurate. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's technically accurate. You are Messiah, anointed one. The problem was Peter and the Jews thought that the Messiah was political, economic, right? Military deliverer from Rome. That's all the Old Testament, everything for hundreds of years. They believed that the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to deliver them from Rome and bring prosperity, economic, financial, military, prosperity and security. That's what their view of Messiah was. That's why when Jesus entered, remember, when he enters on a donkey instead of a stallion, kind of like messed them up a little bit. Stallion would have been ruler, conqueror. Donkey, not so much. Right? So, so Peter says, you are the Christ. Military, political, right? That's right, right, right? Aren't you? Right? And, and then, he, then, then we saw in verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone because Jesus knew, ah, right title, but I don't think you get what you really say. And we've discovered in verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the Jews, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Right? So here's Peter, Satan, and this is his adversary. Jesus says, oh, and by the way, you're right about me being Messiah and Christ. Right? But guess what? I'm about to be killed. And Peter, it just it crossed his wires. And he reacted because it wasn't what he expected. And we were challenged in a lot of different practical ways last Sunday. What in your life and my life do I look at through the lens of my own understanding? What in your life and my life am I trying to make decisions about primarily through the world's view? Looking at it from man's perspective. What in your life and my life am I actually maybe an adversary right now? I'm wrestling with God because I don't want to get behind Him. And, and I'm kind of riled up and maybe I'm a little angry at God right now because He's not doing it my way. It's not going in my timeline. Anyone ever have a timeline adjusted by God? <laughs> right? And oftentimes... With, with, without even realizing it, we slide into, well, Lord, can you just bless what I think is best? Right? And so Peter kind of gets exposed and he reacts. His reaction exposes him. And the, the rebuke, it's a pretty strong rebuke. 
And Jesus has to remind him, hey, 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 now, now, now we're at odds. Now you're my adversary. Get behind me. You're supposed to be following. We're supposed to be following. Right? And, and so we, we, we were challenged last Sunday. There's another side to why Peter, apart from not understanding Christ's definition, there's another reason why Peter may have reacted the way he did. All right, so let's look at this. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of law, that um, he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right, so Jesus is having this discussion with who? Peter and the other disciples, right? If we don't understand the nature of a rabbi's relationship with his disciples, there's a lot we're going to miss in this passage. See, the problem wasn't just that Peter thought that the Christ was going to be political military, right? The other problem for Peter, possibly, and the other disciples was like, oh, wait a sec. We're following you. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called rabbi which in that context, okay, meant master or teacher. It was a term of respect. During Jesus' time, the official office of, past, of, of rabbi, like you consider me like a, a, a church position, that didn't occur to like 70 AD, just so you know. In Jesus' day, rabbi was master, teacher, term of respect. There were many rabbis with disciples, okay? So here's Peter, a disciple... And we're going to understand this context because I think many of us are going to go, I get it now. As a disciple, the nature and understanding that Peter had of his teacher, wait, suffered and killed. Rabbi, I'm a follower. Now you're understanding? Right? See, as his disciples, they wanted to follow the political, military, ruler Messiah. But what do you do when you've dedicated your life and your leader, your Messiah, your rabbi says, suffer, killed? Which by default means who else is going to follow in those steps? So not only is Peter conflicted with unmet expectations and false definitions, he's now challenged with well, if that's going to happen to you, us, too? That was heavy. That was heavy. And if we're going to understand what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, we've got to kind of understand the context that, that Jesus um, was speaking to in that culture, okay? So, so hang with me because I'm going to give you a little, little teachable window here, okay? I already shared with you there was rabbis. There were rabbis, teacher masters, right? And in your notes, to help you, you see in the Old Testament, well, in the New Testament, disciple is Mathedes, someone who follows the teachings of another, making them his or her rule of life and conduct. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud. Everyone say Talmud. That's the singular. The plural is Talmudin. Okay? 
So Talmudin is the plural. It means disciple. One who accepts, mimics, and assists in spreading the doctrine of another. We already saw, if you read the New Testament, Jesus is called rabbi in several, several passages. But let me, let me explain something to you about the nature of this rabbi-Talmud relationship. Okay? So, so in the Jewish educational system, it, it was like primary school. It started around age five and went to around age 11 or 12. That was primary school. In those formative years, you know, elementary school, if you want to put it in our context, they were taught primarily the Torah. In fact, by the time they got to be 11 and 12, many of the students would have memorized, memorized the first five books of the Bible. Not a verse. The books. Five of them. By the time they were 11 or 12, they would have memorized it. So Jewish kids were raised with pretty solid biblical scriptural understanding, right? So they get to be 11 or 12, then they can, okay, if they're good enough students, they can be promoted to middle school, which is about two years, two years worth. Okay, so like 12, 13, 14. At the same time, they're learning a trade, the family trade. Okay, very important. When they get to be about 15, 14 or 15, the elite of the elite students, if they are accepted by rabbis, go into a higher learning, like you want to call it master's degree, Ph.D., right, until they're 30. Sound familiar? Now, the elite of the elite, they're 14, 15 years old. It's like as if you wanted, there was this huge competition. And imagine this huge competition of trying to find the elite professor that you're going to be mentored by at a university. And here's what they would do. They would come to these rabbis, the elite rabbis, and they would say, hey, can I be your follower? Can I be your follower? And these rabbis would take them through extreme vetting, tests on the whole Old Testament. By this time, many of them would have had to have memorized the whole Old Testament. They'd take them through debates, through rhetoric, all this kind of stuff. And at the end of this vetting process for the elite of the elite students, a rabbi, if they accepted this person, would come and say to their Talmud, Come, follow me. Now, when a person became a Talmud, they left their house, they left their parents, they left everything. The the rabbi became the authority in their life. The Talmud followed the rabbi totally. What I mean by, not just the teachings, his mannerisms. He ate when the rabbi ate. He slept when the rabbi slept. He was a mini-me. You know that. Not just teaching, okay? It wasn't just teaching. That's our Western mindset. That's our Greek mindset that we want to put on the Bible. When I became a Talmud, I just followed Rabbi Garrett. So, so here he is, right? I'm his Talmud. A Talmud had complete trust 
in the rabbi. Didn't even question where they were going. Didn't question where he was going. His life was his life. Unquestioned. And it has, like he stood, I would want to stand. Whatever he did, his, his jokes, his mannerisms, everything in his life, I wanted to be. That was the nature, thank you. That was the nature of Rabbi Tami. Everything. The whole life. Right? You had to give up everything and completely submit and typically for 15 years. 15 years. You would want to become the rabbi. Not just learn, not just memorize what the rabbi said. You wanted to become the rabbi. In fact, look, I put a, a wonderful prayer in your at the top of your notes there. This was a very uh, uh, a well-known prayer. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, Rabbi Garrett. So, you know, there was no paved roads. They walked everywhere. So here's the word picture again. Rabbi, I'm going to stay so close to him 24-7 that the dust that he kicks up lands on me. That is the word picture of a rabbi Talmud relationship. May Garrett's dust, may I be so closely around him all the time that the dust from his feet covers me. Thank you. That is the context of that region and the Jewish upbringing that Jesus was speaking to. Okay? You get it now? So, Jesus, in the New Testament, he never uses the word Christian. He always uses the word disciple. So, the challenge now for us in our Western Greek mindset is to read the Bible correctly through the, G- the, the Jewish mindset and to understand Jesus' words about being a disciple now that you get this word picture. Because let, let me just share with you some of these verses that you maybe didn't really understand too well and you thought, wow, that's kind of harsh. That's kind of harsh to be a follower of Jesus. Anyone ever read this? Matthew 10, 37. You don't have to turn there. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't mean proactively hate, as in life, like this angst. The word hate in the Bible means love less. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't love me preeminently, like I am it, like I'm your Valentine, right? If you love anyone more than me, you can't be my disciple. See, in our Western mindset, we go, ooh, that's harsh. Ooh, that's an add-on. 
This is where if we don't understand the, what I just shared with the Jewish mindset, we in, in America, in the Western culture, say, well, I'm a Christian, but being a disciple is for the mature people. Are you sure? I'm a Christian. I said a prayer. I put my faith in Jesus. But now pastor says I need to be a disciple. Is there really a distinction? Biblically. Now that you understand the context that Jesus is speaking to. There is isn't. A Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian from the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Somehow or another, in the last someone I was doing some research, it's about fairly new. In the last hundred years or so, is where this teaching has has seeped into the church that you can be a Christian and then disciple is something else. A disciple is something else for the really committed, for the really serious, for the Bible scholars. No, no, no. Now that you understand the context to which Jesus was speaking. When he said, come follow me, that audience, the Jewish audience, oh yeah, sure, we see that all the time. We see that all the time around here. Disciples who willingly give up everything. Remember, to, to go through all that test and all the vetting as a 15-year-old and to be accepted was the same as being accepted to Ivy League. The best of the best school, so to speak. And so you willingly gave up your whole life, you gave up your family, and you wanted to be so close to a rabbi that his dust would cover you joyfully and willingly. Joyfully and willingly. It was, a, it was a, just a total surrender. You're like, yes! Woo! Here I am. I just want to be you. That's the context in which Jesus says what he just said. If you want to be his disciple, if you want to be his followers. Those verses, Jesus is speaking to those who really understood right away. Because it wasn't foreign to them. We're the ones in our Western mindset that created this, this false split. This false split. And then, then we, we, we read the story of the guy in the book. Well, I come to church and you're interfering with my life. But I thought your life was Jesus' life. How can I be interfering with your life if your life belongs to Jesus? But see, there's a split. There's church and Jesus and, and serving and all this over here. But then when I leave here, this is my life. And a lot of our challenges, okay, when we leave here and the choices and decisions we make, is it issue of surrender? Whose life is it? Whose life is it? So now I share this with you and I want to take this time for you to understand the, the, the literal context of what it meant to be a disciple as Jesus was walking around. It was par for the course. It was par for the course to be all in and to surrender your life to your teacher, your master. It wasn't a foreign concept at all. And so, we look at this passage, look at Mark 8, right? And now we understand. Look at verse 34. Here is Jesus. 
telling us what it means to be his disciples. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Here it is. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We're going to look at this passage more as we move forward these next few weeks. But look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We get hung up on, well, what do you mean by cross? And what do you mean by this? No. Now, with the context, you understand, he just simply meant, give up your life. You want to follow me? Will, joyfully, willingly, just come follow me. Be so close to me that the dust of my feet will cover you. And you know what? This helps me. i got to tell you, this, this has helped me to even understand some of these passages in Scripture that, that maybe, you know, you, know, you know when Peter, remember the story in Matthew 14 where Peter wants to walk on water? Right? And they're out on the storm, you know, and then, and then Jesus says, Hey, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. Now, understanding the context of Rabbi Talmud, that was perfectly normal. You get it? Hey, Rabbi, if that's you, i got to be there. I'm supposed to be right next to you. Tell me to come. It was perfectly normal and logical for Peter to want to be where Jesus was out on the water. If my teacher's there, i got to be there. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome to want to be where Jesus is? And so what does Jesus say? Come. The Rabbi had faith in him. He didn't say, oh, no, Peter, you're not, you're not able to handle this. No, Peter. Peter's issue when he sank was that he took his eyes off the rabbi, off the, right? And he got consumed. But what did the rabbi say? Well, come. Of course you're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be next to me. You're my Talmud. Come on, Talmud. Makes more sense. In that nature of that relationship, Peter just needed to be where Jesus was. Naturally, Rabbi tell me the relationship, right? It, it, it's so amazing you can look through Scripture now and understand the dynamic of what it meant to follow a rabbi so close that his dust would cover you. That a lot of Jesus' words just make sense. A lot of the stories that you and I maybe uh, go, oh, okay, why did Peter want to do that? Was he just showing off? Was Peter just a big show-off? No, Peter was a disciple and understood he needed to be where his rabbi was. Rabbi walks on water? I want to walk on water because I want to be him. Right? Even I was thinking of this, if you think about the Great Commission. So what would happen, check this out, it's pretty cool. So 15, age 15 to age 30, you follow the Talmud, follows the rabbi, and at a certain point, the rabbi says, okay, I think you're ready to go. I think you're pretty much me. I'm going to commission you to go make disciples. 
Because now you're ready to go make more of you, which looks like me. What does that sound like? Oh, the Great Commission. Matthew 28. You see, if we don't understand the Great Commission in light of the Rabbi Talmud relationship, we think the Great Commission is to go and just teach people and run them through programs, discipleship programs. And we, we create programs and discipleship and read books and we go through all these curriculum to disciple people. No. At your graduation, Rabbi says, yep, you're me. Now go do that. Go find your followers and make them like you, which will make them like me. Jesus says, hey, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. You who are my disciples. Go and make people that look like, ultimately, me. It's relational. It's all relationship. The Western mindset wants to make it academic. The Western mindset wants to make it programmatic. The Western mindset wants to make it performance-driven. We want to do, 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 do. And now we understand the context of Rabbi Talmud. No, just be, 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 24-7. Were you ever in school and you hung out with someone, uh, a best friend, that you started to talk alike? Started to dress alike? You ever have hang out with people and you started to talk like them? Use the same slang? Maybe even act like them a little bit? You ever come home and get into it with your parents and your parents are like, who are you hanging out with? Who's the bad influence on your life? Because this ain't you. You ever have that? What's happening? The people that you're hanging out with all the time are rubbing off on you. And by default, you're picking up their mannerisms. You're picking up their language. You're picking up their attitude. Now multiply that exponentially to following Jesus. He says, just follow me. Pick up my, not just my teachings. See, in the Western church, we've made it very teaching heavy. I just want to know what Jesus taught. I just want to know what Jesus thought about this. It's, 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 it's way more. It's your life. It's my life. Just hang out with him. Just follow him so closely that you start to look like him and talk like him. That's what a disciple is. That's discipleship. That's what we're about, right? That's the core of it. Luke 6.40, Jesus says this, A student is not above his teacher. Here he goes, But everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus says, everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him, what? Must walk as Jesus did. Great verse to add there that I thought of right before service. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In the Western church, if you're not careful, when, you, when I say you must walk as Jesus did, right away you want to list a bunch of do's and a bunch of don'ts. Well, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Wink, wink. I'm going to wear a bracelet. If you're going to walk as Jesus did, here's the thing. You've got to walk with Jesus. If you're going to walk as Jesus did, you've got to walk with Jesus. Wherever you are, at work, at home, at school, on the athletic field, 
You walk with Jesus 24-7. And by golly, if you do that long enough, you're going to walk like Him. Your walking with Him will permeate to walking like Him. That's the difference between the Jewish understanding of discipleship and the Western church. And I understand it's like, whoa, that's like, yeah, it is well. Because you've got to sit down and you've got to be honest with yourself. What has my understanding of a disciple or a follower of Jesus been? Has it been relationship? Has it been doing? Has it been lists? Or has it been love and just being with Him? See, when we encourage you to have quiet time and, and, and read your scripture, here's the thing, guys. It's not just to-dos to check off your list so Pastor Richie doesn't get mad at you. And it's not just designed to check off so you feel good that you did something that you were supposed to do. Let me clue you in. When we encourage you to read Scripture and have a quiet time, the real heart behind that is that you spend time with Jesus. We just want you to spend time with Him. Yeah, relational. It's a relational thing. It really is. It's just relational. Right? And so, I encourage you, take the time you need to to really sit back and go, what has been my paradigm about following Jesus? Am I a fan or a follower? Have I made this false distinction between Christian and disciple? And if you're wondering, ask a friend. Ooh. Sometimes they give you honest input if you give them permission. They'll look at your life objectively, your priorities, your commitments. It's all revealed in how you spend your time and your money, your resources. Okay? Just be, it's okay. It's not meant to be, meant to be condemning her. It's just meant to be honest. Truthful. Understanding Jesus' call. And you know the great thing is, and I'll wrap up with this. Turn to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Word of encouragement to us. Matthew 4. Verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Very familiar passage. Probably most of you and I thought of it in terms of evangelism. Oh, he's calling them and he's going to use them to reach people. Okay, now let's look at the lens of what you know about Jewish culture. Let's read it again. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So, Here's a wonderful encouragement. 
We understand that in the Jewish educational system, the people who got to be the disciples of Talmud were the cream of the crop, the best of the best students, the AP honors, four-point gazillion GPAs, right? Cream of the crop, right? It's very interesting that he goes to these guys who would have come through that educational system. Now, what happened was, remember when I said when they were 12 or 13, they would go to continue schooling, but they would learn a trade? If you weren't doing so well in school, at a certain point, the headmaster would say, hey, um, I think it's best you go do your family's trade. I, I think, I, thanks for trying, but you need to go. I think it's best that you go do the trade. This is no longer for you. You didn't make the cut. In Matthew 4, these guys are in the middle of their trade. At some point, these guys didn't make the cut. And Jesus flips it because 99.9% of the time, all these students were chasing rabbis to follow them. Rabbis didn't ask, didn't, didn't hunt for their disciples. They didn't need to. In Matthew 4, Jesus proactively is walking along, seeing guys who were doing their trade because they were no longer made the cut. And he, rabbi, goes and asks them to follow him. Anybody here never feel like you didn't make the cut? Take this the right way. I don't see a lot of Ivy Leaguers in here, you know. Or you ever feel less than? Right? You ever like, I don't measure up? Right? So in the Jewish system, very performance, academic driven, the elite become the Talmud. Everyone else, go be blue collar trade. Take up a trade. Thanks. But you're done. Jesus calls the guys who didn't make the cut. And he went to them. Isn't that awesome? He went to the guys who didn't make the cut academically. And look what he says. I love this, right? This is such encouragement. Come, follow me. You understand what he meant. We all understand what that means now, the commitment, what he's saying. Follow me, right? But now get it. Don't, don't lose the significance. They're doing their trade. They're in their everyday life. Rabbi Jesus comes and asks them who have been discarded and didn't make the grade, didn't, you know, their name wasn't on the final list. They got cut. Okay, this is my lot in life. I'm just a fisherman. This is my trade. Rabbi Jesus comes and says, come follow me. Now you get the immediately they left. Woo! Let's go! Let's go! A rabbi wants us to follow him. You ever felt like you lost hope? And you're hopeless? And no, there's no chance at all. And suddenly God does something. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? I thought it was hopeless. Anyone? These guys are just doing their trade. And along comes Jesus. Come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me. Just be with me. And I'm going to make you 
who didn't make the cut like me. Fishers of men was not some crazy discipleship program. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost and give my life a ransom. He was the fisher of men. Amen? Come follow me. Let the dust, my dust cover you. And I'm just going to make you guys who never made the cut, who thought it was hopeless, and you're just going to be fishermen. You just come with me, and I'm going to make you like me. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Stay close to Him. So close to Him. 24-7. And let Him transform you into Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for that beautiful example that your first disciples were guys that didn't make the academic cut. Your first disciples were just blue-collar tradesmen going about their business thinking that it was hopeless that anybody would consider them significant. And we're so reminded of your grace through that story. That you came to seek and save the lost, the broken. Lord, I think about Acts 4.13. The religious leaders were astonished. They said when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's what it is. To be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to be with Jesus. It's a relationship first. And so as we prepare for communion, what a wonderful reminder in the cups, the juice and the bread, that you invite us to follow you in relationship. In relationship. To come, follow you. And you will transform us into your image as we follow you. If you're here this morning and you've never responded to that initial call to Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. Put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Believe, rest in His finished work at the cross. That He paid the penalty you or I could never pay. It's not about work. It's not about trying to be good enough. It's just trusting in the finished work of Jesus at Calvary and in the trusting we choose to follow. We follow Him as Savior. Our life is His life. Put your faith in Him this morning. And if you are here and perhaps you have church history and, and the Lord is speaking to you about what it means to be a disciple, Maybe there are compartments in your life. Your life versus church or your life versus Jesus. And and maybe that illustration about the guy who was leaving a church because every sermon interfered. Lord, if that's us, we confess that this morning. If there's areas of our life where we're being adversarial towards you, we're not yielded, we're not committed, we're thinking about it in the, the, the view of man, we confess it. Ultimately, we want to be your Talmud. 
We want to be a church, a, a Talmudin, a church of Jesus followers. Just Jesus followers. Imperfect as that may be, and yet committed to being like Jesus. Because we are committed to being with Jesus. So as we take this time of communion and prayer and reflection, I ask you to speak to our hearts, Lord, individually and even collectively to the church, what it means to follow you. We're going to distribute the cups. If you're new, visiting, uh, we have two cups. One will have juice and one will have bread. They're stacked. If uh, you would like to participate in communion, we invite you to do so as believers in Jesus. It's it's simply a a reflection as well of our uh, faith in Christ collectively. And so we're going to distribute those. If you'd like to take the cups um, as a believer in Jesus, you're more than welcome to do that. Once everyone has been served, we'll uh, take communion together. First Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
band can. The band's coming up. It's a word of encouragement. Word of uh, reminder. I love in John fifteen sixteen. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Remember, now you understand the context. As rabbi, he actually went out and chose his disciples. He didn't wait for them to come to him. Pretty cool. And then he says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Why did he choose us? To go and bear fruit. So as we leave here, celebrate being a disciple of Jesus. But take that celebration now into the second half of that. Go and bear fruit. Go and bear fruit. And here's the crazy thing. As you bear fruit as a disciple of Jesus, the world's going to take notice. Mm -hmm. And our desire around here is that the world goes, that's what a follower of Jesus is? And you go, yeah. I go, I want that. I like that. We're, I want that. That's what a follower of Jesus is. I could do that. I like that. I like that. We're, you're different. I like that. Right? He chose us to go and bear fruit. Can we do that together this week? Let's do that. Let's stand together, sing a song called Amazing Love.